Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. Well, thank you for being here. Tell everybody who you are and where to find you. Um, I'm Emily Lavin Leverett. You can find me at emilylavinleverett.com on Twitter at Emily underscore Leverett on Instagram at Emily Leverett author. And that is mostly cat pictures. And (laughs) every day I'm on campus teaching, I do take a selfie of a different mask that I'm wearing and put that up. So if you want to follow that, that's Instagram. Um, Nice. Yeah. And on the Falstaff page, uh, Falstaff books, you can find me and, you know, Amazon, those kind of places too. Good deal. Uh, What are you going to be reading for us? Um, I'm going to be reading a section from Thomas Mallory's Mort to Arthur, which if you know the story of Lancelot and Guinevere, then you know Thomas Mallory because he's really the one that made that a thing before that. Lancelot wasn't nearly as important. Um, And everybody hated Guinevere because she was awful. (laughs) Um, She's actually much better in Mallory than she is in a lot of things prior to it. So the time-honored tradition of taking a minor character, quote-unquote, and really like running with them. Right, yes. Something that so much Arthuriana is, is just people. Yeah, there was no copyright. (laughs) (laughs) no copyright at all nobody could stop you from doing anything and they had the lovely thing called translation which is i read a story i liked and now i'm going to rewrite it the way i want to not Uh because today when we say translation we generally mean accuracy nope they meant i saw this once and liked it and now i'm going to tell it my way um which is great i mean it's delightful but it is really different and i mean we know mallory sources um one of my favorite things about him is that whenever he writes something that we are not able to find in his sources, he always says, the French book says, blah, 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 blah. And we know his sources are English. They're not French. <laughs> like we have them. <laughs> and so he's totally using that to do what he wants and pretend he has the authority to do so by like, you know, it's the medieval equivalent of, well, they say, who what? Nope. Nope. He's just making it up whole cloth, you know, <laughs> which is wonderful, but also funny. <laughs> That's hilarious. I've never known that. That's amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, he's late medieval. He's writing in or after um, the war of the roses and okay. the sort of really vicious civil war. And when you have a civil war among nobility, usually most people get pardoned right? Because you can't just wipe out half of the entire nobility and expect to still run the state. 
So it's pretty much like, well, that's over and we're all going to pretend that never happened. Um, and so you have lists of, you know, sort of blanket pardons. And we actually have one in which he is specifically named as not pardoned. Like Ooh. that's how much he upset people. Um, and he did, <laughs> he did die in jail and possibly wrote a good chunk of this in jail. And it sort of reflects his disillusionment, like, Arthurian's, Arthur's court falls apart and that reflects, I think, his grief and anger at his own political world just falling apart. Like, people are sinners and awful and there are always one or two people that are really awful, awful that are just going to screw it up for the rest of us. Wow. And so it's sad. I mean, it's Arthurian legend. It's sad. He dies at the end. Sorry if you didn't know. I mean, the book is called The Death of Arthur. So <laughs> <Right. like, laughs> I feel like that's not quite a spoiler for something that's, you know, almost 600 years old, but just in yeah. case. <laughs> that's awesome, though. But Feel free to fire it up whenever you're ready. Okay. Um, so this is from, depending on how it's constructed. This is from book 20 and it's chapter one um, called How Sir Agravain and Sir Mordred were busy upon Sir Gawain for to disclose the love between Sir Lancelot and Queen Guinevere. So it starts, in May when every lusty heart flourisheth and burgeoneth for as the season is lusty to behold and comfortable, so man and woman rejoice and gladden of summer coming with his fresh flowers for winter with his rough winds and blasts causes a lusty man and woman to cower and sit fast by the fire. So in this season, as in the month of May, it befell a great anger and unhap that was stinted not till the flower of chivalry of all the world was destroyed and slain. And all along upon two unhappy knights, the which were named Agravain and Sir Mordred, that were brethren unto Sir Gawain. For this Sir Agravain and Sir Mordred had ever a privy hate unto the queen, Dame Guinevere, and to Sir Lancelot, and daily and nightly they ever watched upon Sir Lancelot. So it mishapped Sir Gawain and all his brethren were in King Arthur's chamber, and then Sir Agravain said thus openly, and not in no counsel, that many knights might hear it, I marvel that we all be not ashamed both to see and to know how Sir Lancelot lieth daily and nightly by the queen, and we all know it so, and it is shamefully suffered of us all that we all should suffer so noble a king as King Arthur is so to be shamed. Then spake Sir Gawain and said, Brother Sir Agravain, I pray you and charge you to move no such matters no more for me, for which you well, said Sir Gawain, I will not be of your counsel. So God me help, said Geharis and Gehareth, we will not be knowing, Brother Agravain, of your deeds. Then will I, said Sir Mordred, I believe well, said Sir Gawain, forever and unto all unhappiness, Brother Sir Mordred, thereto will you grant. And I would that you left all this and made you not so busy, for I know, said Sir Gawain, what will fall of it. Follow a, fall of it what may, said Sir Agravain, I will disclose it to the king. Not by my counsel, said Sir Gawain, for, there, um, for in there rise war and rack between Sir Lancelot and us, which you well, brother, there will be many kings and great lords hold with Sir Lancelot. Also, brother Sir Agravain, said Sir Gawain, you must remember how oft times Sir Lancelot hath rescued the king and queen, and the best of all of us had been full cold at the heart root, had not Sir Lancelot been better than we, and that hath provided himself full oft. 
And as for my part, said Sir Gawain, I will never be against Sir Lancelot for one day's deed. When he rescued me from King Carados of the Dolores Tower and slew him and saved my life. Also, brother Sir Agravain and Sir Mordred, in likewise Sir Lancelot rescued you both and threescore and two from Sir Tarquin. Methinketh, brother, such kind deeds and kindness should be remembered. Do as you list, said Sir Agravain, for I will lane it no longer. With these words came to them King Arthur. Now, brother, stint your noise, said Sir Gawain. We will not, said Sir Agravain and Sir Mordred. Will ye so, said Sir Gawain, then God speed you, for I will not hear your tales nor be of your counsel. Normal, no, no more will I, said Sir Gareth and Gaheris, for we will never say evil by that man. For because, said Sir Gareth, Sir Lancelot may be knight, by no manner owe I to say ill of him. And therewithal they three departed, making great dole. Alas, said Sir Gawain and Sir Gareth, now is the realm wholly mischieved, and the noble fellowship of the round table shall be disparpled. So they departed. Wow. That's, that's A, that's a beautiful language. Thank you for reading. That was great. Um, B, I had never realized how much it's basically uh, anything on the spectrum between like I don't know, mean girls and uh, like, there's so much, there's so much, I'm trying to think now of the name of a movie. Gossip. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's high schoolers at a lunch table. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, that's one of the things about it um, that I really like, and that is so deeply sad is that Gowan knows at this point, it's all going to fall apart. And I mean, it goes just as he says it is, it's all going to fall apart. Um, and there's a lot in this about the difference between something bad happening and everybody knowing something bad happens and everybody talking about the bad thing that happens. Um, everybody knows Lancelot and Guinevere are sleeping together. Arthur knows it's implied that they're sleeping together, but nobody has to do anything about it unless somebody says it in public and Agravain and Mordred do. And of course they catch Lancelot and Sir Guinevere together and Lancelot is able to get away and Sir Guinevere and Guinevere is set up to be burned because it's treason and he saves her and whisks her away. And that starts the wars. Um, and as far as Gowan goes, um, Arthur tells him he has to be at the burning because they know Lancelot's going to come save Guinevere. And Gowan is Arthur's nephew and he's, one of the oldest knights and he looks at Arthur and is like, mm, Nope, not going to be there. And it's fine. But his younger brothers, Gareth and Gehareth cannot say no to the King. And so instead of saying no, they decide to not go armed and they are in the press of soldiers around Guinevere and Lancelot kills them without knowing them because they're not in any kind of armor. And that devastates Gowan. And that's sort of the moment where everything falls apart because he cannot believe that Lancelot would kill them and he cannot forgive Lancelot. And so he sort of forces Arthur to make war on Lancelot over and over and over. And Lancelot almost kills him, but won't because that's not the kind of knight he is. Yeah. And it's really, I mean, it looks like Gowan's trying to commit suicide. <laughs> like he's lost everything so much. And eventually he dies fighting Mordred because of a head wound that's aggravated that he got from Lancelot. Mm -hmm. But when he writes his death letter, he writes a letter to Lancelot saying, basically, I know none of this was your fault. I forgive you. And please forgive me for doing all of this psychotic fighting thing. And please come help Sir Arthur, or King Arthur. So it resolves itself a bit, but by then it's too late. And mm -hmm. so just this idea that 
a place that's built on lies doesn't have a chance to last. And even if you have the best people in the history of the world, they're just people and it's not going to last. Yeah. And the, I'd never known its connection to the War of the Roses. And I'd never known that about Thomas Mallory and, and being imprisoned. And it really does point out the way that it is. It's not complicated fiction. It's like really directly talking about the time that he's in and mm-hmm. what happens when people let the petty intrigues be what define the nation's future. Yeah. And the people being so bound by the social structure they're in, like Arthur cannot say it's my wife. I don't care what she's doing. So I'm not going to do anything about it because that's not justice. And he is responsible for dispensing justice. That's cronyism. (laughs) I like Lancelot. So I, you know, I don't want to treat him badly. Well, you can't do that. Like you can't do that and be fair. Um, so he is stuck in a position that he can't win. And actually at one point he says, um, I'm going to lose all of these amazing knights and I could get another queen, but I will never get this fellowship again. Right. This idea that this camaraderie has exploded and it can't be put back together. And it's so much more dramatic and compelling than the maybe relation, maybe romantic relationship he has with Guinevere. Yeah. You know, Wow. That's powerful stuff. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it basically reads like a novel. I mean, it's not hard. It's in middle English and middle English is not hard to read. Yeah. Um, and the, the opening in spring I've always loved because when I lived in Columbus, cause I grew up in California. So I did not understand what spring coming meant, but that beautiful <sighs> idea of spring coming and like the first time it's warm and I saw it like I would walk out on the quad on the first even remotely warm day. And there were, you know, a thousand half naked undergrads out more or less interested in love. And I was just like, yeah, okay, now I understand because yes, I have in fact been locked inside all winter and it makes me crazy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so that scene, um, and the same language is used earlier at the Lancelot and Guinevere story but now it's, but this is the beginning of the end, right? And when I talk about unhappiness, we think of that as sadness, but in the time um, it's related to like haphazard. So it means unlucky. And so all of this Uh. unlucky stuff is going to happen because of these two assholes, basically. Yeah. Um, You know, and that's going to blow up everything. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. So it's one of those you, things I could talk about forever. So I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you have of your own to read? Um, I'm reading a bit from um, my newest book called The Wolf in the Cloister, which is book none of the book none. Huh, book one of The Wolf and the Nun. There we go. Oh, okay. <laughs> All the right words in the right order. Um, And it's a romance um, and it's a paranormal historical romance. It's set in the late 12th century, which is about 300 years before Mallory, but they still have Arthurian legend. And it's based on the life and stories of Marie de France, a 12th century nun um, who was possibly 
the sister to Henry II, a bastard sister. We don't know who she was for sure. That's one of the possibilities. And it's the possibility that I take in my novels. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's based on her poem, um, a medieval romance, romance meaning knights and ladies and monsters and magic and stuff, not romantic plots like we think of them. Um, So kind of like Gothic romance in that sense of like, um, it's not as dark and incestuous as Gothic romance okay. often is. Um, That's an important I mean, it's distinction. It's basically straight up fantasy. Like it's just straight up fantasy. Okay. It certainly is the grandparent of modern day romance novels because there are romantic storylines in some of them, but they're not the primary things. You know, it okay. sort of goes from this to then Jane Austen and then, you know, half naked men on book covers, um, you know, generationally speaking. Um but yeah, and it's about a guy named Bisclaret who turns into a wolf three days a week. And so Marie and um, Lord Blaise Claveret in my book are the two main characters. Okay, great. Um, and I'm reading from the end of chapter two. Um, he is kind of a debauched hero uh, Claveret was on crusade and much like Gowan got broken by seeing all of this horror, Claveret got broken in many ways because he went very idealistic, right? I'm going to go fight for God. And it just did not go that way. And the worst behavior he saw was from some of his own people um, and it didn't matter. And so he came back devastated by that. And while he was in the um, crusades, he picked up, what he thinks is the curse that turns him into a wolf three days a week. And so when he returns, he tries marrying his sweetheart who eventually divorces him because wolf three days a week. Um, so he sort of rebounds through sex and sin parties and that sort of stuff. Um, okay. And so Marie, who was a new nun at Shaftesbury Abbey has been tasked with going to Clavery's castle to look at his library to try to help recover a stolen relic and see if his knowledge can't help. And um, she has been sent dressed as a monk because that's safer for her to travel the 20 or so miles. And it's also suggested um, that she introduce herself that way to Clavre to be taken a bit more seriously. Um, Mm -hmm. And so she's arrived in the middle of his midsummer party and Claveret has a letter that says a young person has come to essentially learn spiritual stuff. So he thinks it's funny to have one of his servants who's dressed as a monk take her on a tour through the house. Um, And she spends most of the time trying not to laugh because she's far more worldly than he would think a nun should be. Um, she's not particularly scandalized as much as she sort of rolls her eyes at it because she's actually seen actual demons. So a bunch of people having sex and pretending to blaspheme does not impress her as evil. But. Yeah. So this is their first <laughs> encounter um, and she's being led by the monk to him. So the servant bowed her through yet another door, um, the seat receiving room of the house. A large fireplace took up most of the side wall and a few yards across from it was a dais on which two men sat, both in masks. One a red fox with the hair to match, the other a wolf. So here was the master of the house. The fox rose. 
On behalf of the most generous Viscount Clavre, I welcome you to Storm Castle. He bowed low, but it was more comic than respectful. You may go, the wolf said, waving the monk's tour guide away. She had half a mind to simply turn and follow the monk. She certainly wasn't going to curtsy or bow for that matter. Instead, she walked to the dais, keeping her strides long and clean with no feminine hips. The man in the wolf's mask, though sitting, was obviously quite tall. He had black hair long around his shoulders. His long tunic was fitted, showing a broad chest and narrow waist. The belt was leather, the clasp was gold, real no doubt, as were the gems in it. His hose were tightly fitted, silk, she guessed. Pale fur lined the inside and hems of his tunic. The rest was a deep indigo. Even his leather boots were spotless and shone in the firelight. He certainly dressed to impress. Perhaps the tales of his beauty were lies and the mask he wore passed off as part of the revelry hid a monstrous face, an appearance that punished his transgressions and revealed the horror inside. If I am inconveniencing your lordship, she said directly to the wolf, I would be happy to retire and speak to you tomorrow. He laughed and it rolled down her spine, sending chills. She'd given up very deliberately those kinds of feelings, if only her body had gotten the message. Young man, he taunted, the bishop was quite clear in his missive. You and I are to learn from each other. How are you to fight the evil of the world if you are unfamiliar with it? Old sins are much easier to shun than new, are they not? I am knowledgeable enough on that subject, I think, she replied, her temper rising, and I was told that I was sent here to do the Lord's work, not learn lessons, and certainly not waste my time. In truth, she had no idea what the bishop had written in his letter, only that it would be sufficient to allow her access to the Viscount in his library. His knowledge from his time in the Crusades was deep. He leaned forward as if to see her better. His wolf mask was tied with black silk ribbon, and she could see small streaks of white at his temples. His eyes sparkled a green that seemed to glitter in the firelight and the lights of the copious candles surrounding his dais. They were tempting, yes, and dark, but not evil. She'd seen evil up close. This was not it. It is my time to waste, he said. His voice was cold, though his eyes still seemed playful. I've had a long ride, my lord, she said. Can we perhaps save the games for morning? You have so much now to entertain you. He rose with swift grace, and he was indeed tall and lean. He stalked down the few steps toward her like an animal, like she was prey. My entertainment, he glanced to the side, save my dear fox, has grown dull. Perhaps you might entertain me. That is not my vocation. She wanted to step back. He was in her space. Thankfully, he was tall enough that she could keep her face down, turned to the side, and he might not know she was a woman. She herself was tall, sturdy, not at all like most women she'd seen on her passage through to this room. She sensed that if he knew she was a woman, the conversation would change quickly. That was a surprise that could wait until morning. So no time for games, he sighed. Very well. The bishop alluded to some crisis. What is it he wishes me to do? There was an edge, an anger in his voice, like his work for the bishop wasn't voluntary. How could a man who flaunted so much sin be bound to a priest? Her mind flashed back to the night in the rose maze. The Kels Crozier, she said, it's been taken. What? He shook his head. Those damn fools. He strode past her a few steps and she turned to watch. She jumped out of his path as he returned and settled into a pace. He stopped and looked at her. How many dead? She glanced down again, shielding her face. None, she said. They snuck in and out without notice, though one monk is missing. He snorted. No violence to the monastery itself? No, she shook her head. They knew the person who took it. He turned to the fire. It would seem so, or they knew the person, or they knew who the person appeared to be. 
So you think this crime is demonic? He studied the flames like they might tell him something. My guess is yes, I've not been there to see. He glanced over his shoulder at her. And do you think seeing would help? Perhaps. With his fierce gaze on her, she wanted to be far away from him, but she didn't dare move. He inhaled deeply. He reached behind his head and untied the mask, dropping it on the ground. Come now, he said, take a good long look. She did. The stories she'd heard about his appearance had only been correct in their estimation of the intensity. He was a beautiful man. He was as beautiful a man as she had ever seen. The flames cast dancing shadows on his skin, tanned from time in the sun, but not burnt. His angular cheekbones and sharp nose were every bit aristocratic. His mouth was perfect, soft lips and a gentle curved smile. His eyes shone even brighter green and tiny lines gathered at their corners. Your turn, monk, he said. I do not know why you haven't revealed your face, but I have shown you mine. I'd rather not, she said, backing away. Oh no, he strode towards her. Quid pro quo. He caught her shoulders in a tight but not painful grip. His brow furrowed. You're a slight thing. Do they not feed you? He pushed the cowl back. Oh, that's good. I love her attitude. I love the fact that she is probably the least innocent person in the conversation. Uh, it makes me think of, again, I don't know why I'm running towards teenagers with my metaphors. <laughs> no, there's a lot there that works, yeah. But like, it makes me think of when you see the goth kids, you know, who are like, if you're an old goth like me, and you see the goth kids who are all like, I'm a Satanist. And you're like, oh my God, I have known real Satanists. Kid. Yeah, so no, <laughs> no, you're not. You don't even know what the word means, but that's cute. That's yeah, cute. Exactly. You know, and I, I love that power dynamic in terms of her knowledge of these matters is so much greater than his, but he's the one who thinks that he's seen some shit. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, they've both dealt with demonic things though. Neither of them want to talk about it. And it's, it's an interesting dynamic because yes, yeah, she's not inclined to back down um, mm-hmm. and neither is he. So Which they match for a great together. story. Yeah. And he isn't sure he's not demonic. And so it's not easy for him to, he's sort of given up on the, I can be a good person thing, but he actually is a good person. Like, Mm-hmm. You know, he can't stop being a good person if, just because he wants to or thinks he's not. Yeah. I love that. It's, you know, it's what makes me eat up things like Forever Night. You know? Right. Yeah. It's, it's that, that story of like the doomed good person who thinks that they're doomed and they don't realize that that doom in some ways has driven them to be better than they ever would have been in the first place. Yeah. And, yeah, he doesn't understand where, again, what he thinks is a curse really came from or why. Like he knows, it makes it sound like a disease. He knows how he got it, but doesn't quite understand what it means that he has it. But, you know. Not unlike disease at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Is God punishing me because really I'm more an animal than I am a person kind of attitude. Oh, that sounds so good. That's so compelling. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Well, thank you. Thank you for letting me. Does like, does Arthuriana, this, there's no wrong answer here. Does Arthuriana like influence that? Oh yeah. Marie's? Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's, it's a reworking of Marie's actual story and she has a bunch of others. Um, there's only one that's explicitly set in Arthur's court, but it's all very, um, 
well, she says in her introduction that they're Celtic stories, Breton stories that she's heard. And I mean, again, with like questions of authority, they may be stories she heard. They may be stories she's making up and saying she heard because <laughs> you need some sort of framework in order to, to say things. She dedicates it to a prince who is either Henry II or one of his sons. Um, so she's aiming high, <laughs> which means yeah. that she must have functioned in high social circles. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it very much does influence this and my other writing as well. Um, mm -hmm. And even if I write contemporary stuff, there's a lot of influence of medieval literature. Um, just because I find that stuff so compelling, there was a reason I decided to get a PhD in it. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, um, I didn't look at it and go, well, this will bore me for the next five decades. <laughs> like, no, that was not my response. <laughs> so I decided, you know, and, and so I've always wanted to write about this. The surprise was not that I wrote a medieval book, but that was I wrote a romance. It's my first try at writing romance. Um, and I bought into a very patriarchal, obnoxious narrative for a very long time that romance was not serious and not real and not art. It was, just, I mean, it's the same thing anybody that's a snob says about any pop culture, but because it was written primarily by and read primarily by women, it was especially poo-pooed. Um, uh -huh. And like, I know that if I had looked at myself at 22 and said, at one point, you're going to write a romance novel, I would have thought that I'd been kidnapped by a patriarchal cult and turned into a whore, you know, not a, been a feminist anymore. And now I'm like, well, no, actually narratives that center entirely on the woman's consent and pleasure are radical and subversive in today's age. And they always have been, you yeah. know? And, and so that idea that a woman would think about her own pleasure first and that a narrative would focus on that is still subversive. I mean, you have any number of movies where you definitely see men having orgasms and they may not even get an R rating. But if you have one where a woman does, it's just as likely to get an X as anything. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that, you know, makes romance subversive. Yeah. And any kind of non sort of straight down the middle, and I deliberately use the word straight, sort of <laughs> love story is um i think that way and both of them certainly as the series progresses qualify i think as queer characters um mm -hmm. in different ways i mean to a certain extent you kind of can't get more queer from human than turning into an animal like that's yeah. already a yeah. queer space in a certain way um but in terms of sexuality too they're very much um not traditional and that's not entirely unusual in medieval romance and medieval history yeah um, it's not they had a very different sense of that sort of thing yeah and it's it just was viewed very differently we view the dichotomy we view a dichotomy between gay and straight and they didn't view it as a dichotomy at all um it was just another thing you did that was sexual, right? Mm -hmm. It would be like if we suddenly decided that people who gave or received blowjobs couldn't get married. Like, yeah. it's an act, not an identity. Um, mm -hmm. And there are other things that sometimes go with it. Um, 
and a lot of it is played up, especially in the Reformation, when they want to shut down um, the monasteries and the nunneries. Like, my favorite is you've got to be really, really careful with those nunneries because those women, you know, you don't know what happens behind closed doors, which is clearly implying sex, and that's fine. And then they're like, and then there are mysterious pregnancies. And I'm like, okay, you don't know how anything works if you think a bunch <laughs> of women are going to get pre- Like, that just shows you sort of how outlandish the propaganda is, right? Yeah. Like, you know, a whole bunch of women and one of them gets pregnant. You're looking at a Mary the Virgin scenario, you know? And, and so it was, it's interesting to look at that. And I'm, I am interested in that stuff. And there's been a large increase in studies in that in academia as well. And so it's really interesting mm-hmm. to look at it sometimes from the critical point of view as well. Totally. Oh. And medieval stuff is fun because there are so many gaps to fill in. Like, yeah, you know, we don't know who wrote most of the stuff, so you can do whatever you want to it when you take it into fiction and they can't really say you're wrong. Not unlike Mallory with Lamorte Arthur. Yeah. I mean, we at least know he wrote that, but so much stuff we don't. Yeah. And, you know, and he had the liberty to say, I've decided to tell this story about Lancelot and Guinevere and, and, Nobody can tell me I'm wrong because we don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I appreciate copyright today as I get paid for my books. <laughs> <laughs> right. But also, I mean, there is something to be said for things that are, well, out of copyright and the ability to take something that someone has done and redo it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's all that most literature is is being really excited about or really pissed off about something you read. And so I'm going to do it this way then. <laughs> you, know? you know, it's like that old saying that like Shakespeare already had all the good ideas, but he stole them too. For, oh yeah. You know? Some of them from the middle ages directly. He stole some stuff directly from Chaucer. Yeah. But yeah, it's, um. Oh, I think it's Harold Bloom who wrote it, but I might be wrong. A, a really heavily influential critical text called anxiety of influence. And the basic argument is, is that every generation is responding to people that came before. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, I mean, he's very white and very Christian and very straight, you know, so it's all about, they're all responding to these great authors, but to a certain extent, it's true. Mm -hmm. Um, To a certain extent, it's also not, but you know, I know I'm responding to a bunch of people and I would never try to write like Chaucer or Shakespeare because I can't and you know but people today don't want to read that but they might might want to read Leverett you know instead of them so oh you know totally yeah I am I saw a tweet the other day in which somebody said the great Gatsby enters the public domain on January 1st so some people out there need to give us the gay version of great Gatsby that we've all deserved all along. And I'm like, you know what? I would read that. It wasn't gay to begin with. No. Yeah. To be fair, there's, there's a lot I mean, there yeah, to begin there's with. There's a lot. Yeah. Cause I mean, the main relationship in the book is between a man and the guy he's fantasizing about basically. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah. and I mean, it's a, it's a great book now too because the ending of it where he's standing on a pier um watching like the house on the other side of the point and just thinking about how everything continues to get drawn back into the past like there was no sense of it's in some ways a sad tragic book like there's a no sense of 
moving past the horror that they go through, that mm -hmm. it just sort of is infinitely recursive, which as it feels like people are trying to drag us back to the 1950s yeah. is something I think, I think Gatsby would in many ways be powerful. I mean, you're looking at a story about a whole lot of really rich people with no regard for anybody who's not rich and, I can't see how that would be relevant at all. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> who, yeah I can't no, no. name any rich people whose only purpose in life seems to be destroying the lives of the people that encounter them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I think, yeah, and also, like, the utter thoughtlessness with what, which people in that book do destroy other people's lives. Mm -hmm. Like, it's one thing to be like, you know, evil laugh, ha ha, I'm going to destroy these people. And another thing to be like, oh, wait, did I? Oh, well, whatever. <laughs> just, like, yeah. just ran over a person, but it doesn't right. matter to you. Okay. Was that a speed bump pothole? I don't know. Oh, well, yeah. let's just keep going. Yeah. I'll get my alignment check next week. Like, yeah, <laughs> whatever. Um, but yeah, there's, I, I really think there are only about a dozen stories and a lot of it is just about the way that they're told and the skill that they're told, at least in terms of the Western canon. Um, I would imagine it's true in the Eastern canon, but I don't know the same stories and I don't know that they're all the same stories, but you do sort of recycle because the human experience stays the human experience. I mean, the fact that we can look at Mallory and go, I can see that playing out in a high school means that better or worse, we haven't changed much. <laughs> since. Like, and in one sense, that's deeply comforting. Like we are still struggling with the same things that made people human 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, like we're still struggling with the same shit. We yeah. haven't fixed it. And so yeah. like the, this sort of history as progressively getting better notion is dangerous and untrue history is not driving forward um we might be but it's not and there's no guarantee you know the whole time bends towards justice not unless you got a whole lot of people pulling on it too yeah it doesn't bend anywhere it just goes and you know if you want to fix it you got to fix it it's not you know and that we haven't suggested that they're really huge problems and take a lot of work, but you know, also maybe we can be better. Like yeah. maybe we can look around and go, eh, there are ways to fix these that, you know, we could, we could do, you know? And I mean, I still buy Mallory that like some people call the more Darthur nostalgic. It's not nostalgic. Um, Cause it does not but sound it, nostalgic at all. It, it, but the idea that it is like, I don't know that we have to be more than momentarily sad that we're imperfect. We just have to be monumentally understanding and compassionate that we're imperfect because in part, that's the problem in Mallory is that there is no tolerance for imperfection. Mm. Lancelot is either the best or he's a traitor, right? There's no possibility for shades in that. And if there had been, it might have been better. Right. But there's not a lot of capacity and space for compassion in a lot of those stories. There's justice, which is great, but without compassion, that's not necessarily that useful. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I always think there's a lot to learn. And they just are such fun characters to, totally. to work with and to play with and to make your own. And there's been a really large um, 
push, like since the mists of Avalon and the, the dragon of Pern for a lot of reclamation of women's voices and retelling from women's voices, points of view, um, these stories and sort of making them different. And those are really fascinating too, to, because the genre romance in the middle ages, one of the most popular audiences for it were women. Mm-hmm. You know, and so women listened to, because a lot of them couldn't read, these stories. And once you got the printing press, Mallory was one of the first things that was printed because people loved that shit. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, there's a reason why everybody still knows that story. Like, you yeah. just, you can't get away from it. Um, and so I think that it's worth going back to, you know, for a number of reasons, but it's also just, fun it can also just be fun and and that's a lot of what i hope my book is i mean you can't write outside of your own time period like mm-hmm. you can't and so i know that there is stuff in there some of it deliberate some of it not necessarily that reflects my politics because you can't write without it yeah um but there's a lot of it that it is just meant to be fun too that sounds so great thank you for thank sharing you. that with us thank you for being here Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. This is such yeah. a great idea for a podcast. Well, <laughs> well, thank you. It's just been a lot of fun. It's been really, really fun. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons attribution license at ccmixter.org.